Hello and welcome to another episode of the Strength Syndicate podcast with myself, Shane Story, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lawrence King, as always. And uh, we have a special guest on the podcast today. So today we have Alan Flanagan. So Alan Flanagan uh, is, if, if you don't follow him on, on Instagram, he's a nutritional advocate on Instagram, but he is also the founder of Alinea Nutrition. He works with Sigma as the chief science communicator, I believe there. Uh, and he is also, I, you're finished your PhD now, are you? Yeah, yeah. So I'm still waiting to, I'm waiting to do my Viva. So I'm waiting to do the defense. Um, but the actual like PhD thesis itself is all submitted and stuff. So yeah, yeah. So, so not quite doctor just yet. Not quite. No, I, I have the uh, the defense probably in mid June, uh, but I know who my examiners are, and that's not necessarily something that I'm I'm, I'm actually quite looking forward to. It, you know, it's. Uh, will you um will you call yourself Doctor Alan Flanagan and uh, appeal no. to party? <laughs> no. I won't. Uh, yeah. there's, there's actually, if you notice, people in the UK, for example, that have a doctorate, um, you can't use that term here. If you've got a doctorate that's and you're not a medical doctor, the proper kind of uh, title in the UK is just to simply have PhD at the end of your name rather than, yeah, whereas in America, particularly some states like Florida, which is where all the quacks go because they have the loosest definition of who can call themselves a doctor, right? So you, can, you could have done like a diploma in, I don't know, chiropractic and they're calling them, and they're implying obviously, of course, that they're medical doctors. So mm. yeah, I, I won't do that. Is there any part there of the introduction that I suppose you'd like to maybe tell people a little bit more about yourself before we kind of get into the topic of today? Uh, no, I think that's, that's pretty... Pretty, pretty solid coverage. Okay, solid. Right, so we can get into uh, the topic of today. So essentially the topic of today is going to be like how to spot bullshit. So I think now more than ever that, you know, we have so much access to information, but it's not necessarily the best of things either because if you're using the likes of social media, you know, you can follow one person and another person is saying the complete opposite. And, yep. you know, in the kind of, the age where outrage sells you know there is so much like kind of conspiracy going around and like nutrition training there are places that have not remained untouched from this at all um and Alan, a lot of your work with sigma as well has like kind of tackled these kind of uh out there kind of notions surrounding nutrition usually the kind of combative um yeah more niche kind of size of nutrition yeah realm so f firstly i'd like you to kind of touch on like what what is a quack because you mentioned what a quack like quacks like they all go to uh like florida it's not donald duck or anything like that is it um, how do we define quack yeah um i mean with with quackery i think broadly speaking we could define it as uh the propagation of pseudoscience or, or just flat out nonsense and falsehood um by people largely for commercial gain right like th this is largely for their own commercial interest they're selling a product or they're selling themselves as, as a practitioner you know a lot of these people hold themselves out as healers in this kind of you know almost hippocratic sense they convey that they have answers to really difficult and complicated health issues and questions and conditions that conventional or the mainstream uh, does not have um, and this is attractive to people, um, you know, because conventional medicine and, and science 
does not have all the answers, right? So uh, there are there are multiple completely valid reasons um, why there are gaps in our evidence base or uh, that our understanding of one condition may be quite advanced. Uh, for example, cardiovascular disease. Like we have a really advanced understanding of what causes cardiovascular disease and how to intervene to treat that disease. But for some conditions, uh, female specific conditions in particular, uh, endometriosis, uterine fibroids, like these complex conditions, we don't really have a lot of answers for. Um, and so you have people who step into this space to mount claims that are not evidence-based, that are pseudoscientific. So to define pseudoscience, it, it might have the veneer of being scientific, they might, for example, say, well, studies show this. And that has this kind of, to someone in the lay audience, that's a, well, they're saying studies show it. So it must be scientific, but those studies may be completely divorced from what they're actually claiming. So that would, that would kind of be the label of pseudoscience. And then they could just be propagating complete and utter nonsense. Like it's just a falsehood. So all of that combined to kind of impact on people would would be what we would consider quackery or or kind of someone we might label them a charlatan um and there are a lot of these out there and in the social media age i think it's just really i think it's really created fertile ground for this kind of quackery and misinformation to just expand exponentially unfortunately yeah and um, you said something kind of interesting there alan i suppose and whenever we're kind of me and Shane might be talking about this kind of subject. You kind of said something that we'd kind of echo, which is that where there's gaps in science or there's gaps in like the literature. And like you said, like a lot of these people tend to occupy very narrow niches, be it in like training or nutrition or, uh, and you, like you said, they kind of uh, go down the route of like being the healer or I, I have the answer. But I suppose just to play devil's advocate to that, when you have um, people and they go to certain practitioners or they try out certain met methods and then they get a result or they get some kind of, a, uh, I suppose, benefit from it. I suppose that's maybe where the, I suppose, the cracks in, I suppose, our way of thinking. I suppose it's very easy for us to sit here uh, in our, um, realm of understanding or oh, oh, sure of course that's quack ratio we know it is but it's for the people that like sitting here in the echo chamber it's fine but sure. for the people that are uh maybe benefiting from those kind of things that we would look at it and be like ah come on what would you say to them right and so and and this crops up a lot so i think there's a couple of there's a couple of perhaps layers to this one is when someone says it works for me, you know, just broadly speaking. Um, what does what does that actually mean? What kind of outcome are we talking about when someone's describing that? Um, you know, have they reversed a disease? Uh, I mean, that's a very, very difficult to do outcome. Um, you know, certainly with a lot of these types of interventions, which would be very low intensive they're often kind of life state you know they're often deliberately not involving drugs and stuff like that so i think we'd need to be first of all really granular about what does someone mean when they say this works for me um 
you know, if it's just as simple as the fact that like, if you look at some of the research around more of the kind of psychological components to care, medical care or otherwise, you know, one of the, one of the biggest benefits that, that people will often get from is simply just the uh, consistency of contact with the practitioner or the fact that someone's listening to them <laughs> and caring, you know? And so there are both tangible and intangible benefits that people can get from having a trainer or a coach or a dietitian or a nutritionist, or, or indeed, you know, someone that's kind of practicing more kind of pseudoscientific perhaps interventions. And it could be that some of the benefit is on some of that more intangible side. Um, if it's more of the tangible claims that are being made, then we can actually investigate that a little further. So for example, with some of the claims that people have made about curing or reversing cancer, well, when you actually dig into some of the people that were held out as the case studies for this, they actually didn't have malignant cancer. They had either very, very early stage or almost like a latent cancer, right? It would be like saying that because you reduced someone's prostate specific antigen levels that uh, you have cured them of prostate cancer, right? And so there's these really, really granular aspects to what's the outcome being claimed here that we can kind of dig into a bit further. And then I think to give the benefit of the doubt to certain areas of practice, and I do say this a lot of the time with specific to nutrition, you can practice evidence-based nutrition while having to fill in gaps in evidence yourself, right? Because we don't have a perfect evidence base. What separates someone practicing an evidence base, and I presume this applies to training and strength and conditioning as well, although I, I, my interest in that literature kind of died about a decade ago, and I really know nothing about what goes on in that field now. So, but, but, but we see kind of similar, you know, I have enough conversations with people in that area. And, you know, I think there are similar kind of principles that apply here. The difference between someone practicing in a kind of science or evidence-based modality versus someone who's practicing more in a kind of quack or pseudoscience modality is how they filled in those gaps in evidence. Practicing within a scientific context, you're filling in those gaps responsibly, pragmatically, and having regard to the current evidence base that exists you're not taking those gaps as an excuse to make these enormous deductive steps um, and fill it in essentially with whatever you want. Um, and I think there, there are kind of two important distinctions in terms of, you know, when people say, hey, it works for me. It's like, well, what do we mean by works? What's the outcome you're talking about here? And in terms of the actual prescription or, or, or protocol they're being told to do, then the kind of it works for me it might just be that someone has actually you know quite skillfully filled in a gap in the evidence and said look you know we don't really have great evidence for this but this is what the evidence does say and as a result of that that this could be worth kind of trying a little bit right as opposed to someone who takes a gap and uses that essentially to exploit the gap and fill in the blanks with whatever they like yeah i i think like there's not there's not a terrible amount wrong with like it's it's uh this thing works for me if you are applying it to you but like when you use what works for you to apply to everybody else then that's kind of where it kind of falls apart because like yeah. like at the end of the day like say if i'm working with a client i'm like obviously i have their kind of preferences and their kind of like a intake sheet like with me um, but then I'm looking at that as well as like, you know, okay, what does like the totality of evidence say and kind of work from there? Like, you know, if there, if there is cracks, well then you kind of just have to experiment a little bit. 
Yeah. But, you know, I would have to be honest in my kind of uh, approach and say, well, I don't necessarily know 100% why this may, this approach may be working for you. Mm-hmm. you know, and have to be kind of honest about that as opposed to coming up with some kind of uh, sciencey kind of answer that is going to make me sound like a genius, you yes. know, and then they tell all their friends, oh, Shane got me to uh, like, you know, eat 20 grams of fat a day because of like, you know, reducing or like keeping like you know, some kind of bullshit, <laughs> like working, whatever. Um, and then as well, that's a very common one that you'll see in like the likes of like strength and condition or like, like bodybuilding, powerlifting, you know, they'll pick some kind of outlier, like, you know, Ronnie Coleman, like, well, Ronnie did this exercise. So like, you know, obviously you should be doing it too. Whereas like, you know, if you apply everything that Ronnie Coleman did to the general population, like, you know, dieting on mcdonald's you know during his prep like probably probably wouldn't work yes yeah exactly and i think i think a lot of that comes from i think both nutrition uh, and kind of the snc side of things are, are both areas where a lot of people get started in it out of say personal interests um they're applying things they're learning to themselves and then they're framing everything and their whole approach to that subject then through the prism of, of, of their own experience and response. Um, and that's, that's the application of anecdote, not evidence, ultimately. Um, and, and you're hoping that people evolve from that to a more evidence-based approach. But again, you know, with the internet, with the ability and on social media, um, a lot of which is very personal brands people are building, you know, uh, I think we have probably the majority of people skipping that step of, oh, I might decide to <laughs> develop some expertise in this area and actually just building a brand on the basis of whatever worked for them in the first place. There's a word um, that keeps coming up, Alan, and I suppose it's, um, I suppose, evidence. So mm-hmm. I suppose I, I'm just going to be throwing spanners in the works here now for the next however long, but um if you were somebody, and I suppose, again, where for the likes of us, we typically living in, living in an echo chamber where we're aware of what evidence is, we probably try and think critically. But for somebody that was maybe like wanted to work maybe on their like, I don't know, their perception of evidence or what they perceive to be um, something of uh, an argument with substantial weight behind it, what are the kind of things that they should be like? open to what kind of things should they be looking for so if someone's like following someone on instagram they're like mm, it's a bit fishy what kind of things should they be looking for maybe out of a practitioner or mm. coach? yeah i i think i think for people that are representing themselves if someone's following someone on social media and that person represents themselves as you know evidence-based or you know following the science to use the now infamous COVID term um then I think there are a couple of things to look for one is what level of detail do they expand into if they make general claims like studies show or research research shows x studies show y and there's no further elaboration on that 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 to me is actually an amber light bordering on a red on a red light and the reason is that because for people that do have a grasp of whatever that evidence base is they should be in a position to not only cite the particular study even if that's just the name I mean there's various ways people can do this on social media they can use 
what's known as like the PubMed ID, PMID, and it's really just a numeric code, right? It's a shorthand way, it's handy to add in social media posts, or they might add like the author, lead author's name, it, you know, could be story and colleagues in 2010 or something like that. And so there are, there are ways that people can actually refer you to that evidence if they're just saying it in the most general sense with no actual supporting citations. I think that should be a first kind of red flag. And then again, people who do know the evidence that they're discussing will be able to actually elaborate on the specifics of a given study or research area, or they're certainly, if it's a big area, able to give it a synopsis in a post and actually explain to you why it is that a study or several studies or a total body of evidence shows what it supposes you're saying it shows. And people should be able to actually explain that. And again, if they're not able to explain it, or if someone comes across a post that has that really general broad brush of studies show X, then I would always kind of encourage people to actually ask, you know, just leave a comment saying, oh, like which studies specifically say this or support this? And what is it about those studies that support that? And if they get shirty and defensive, then, then you know, you're, you've, you've flushed them out already. Because again, any person who considers their science communication as part of their modality, whatever that is, nutrition, training, or otherwise, to be important to what they do, will take the time to explain to that person, knowing that they're supposed to be the person with the expertise and the person asking the question isn't. And they would take the time to actually explain to that person what it is they're, they're from that research actually supports the claim that they're making. Um, I think generally speaking, claims that don't even have studies show or anything accompanying it, or they're just bold, bold assertions. I think they can be written off. And then I think, think in terms of, there's a, there's a couple of other, as it relates to evidence, if people are citing, if people are pretending that they're going that extra step, but the studies that they're citing are from rats or mice, and I think that's also a red flag. <laughs> if that's where they're leaning to first, then that should be a red flag. Um, if they're coming out with, and this is quite common now in nutrition, particularly with some circles for whom the evidence doesn't align with their preconceived beliefs. If they come out with like broad brush dismissals of entire evidence bases as corrupt or industry funded, or even the design, oh, we can't rely on observational research. If these kind of broad statements that lack any context and nuance they're also red flags for me. Uh, what else? Um, yeah, that's that's definitely a good start as far as the, the kind of the evidence red flags go. Yeah, no, that was uh, that was fairly comprehensive. I suppose for me anyway, um, like I would I'd have a first year health science students um, for for lectures and your, you know, like for a lot of people, a lot of them, their first kind of like taste of kind of like science or like people that are doing research is true. Like it is true Instagram. I mean, call a spade a spade. So I mean, like there's like, like a lot of the things you've repeated there would be stuff I try and echo back to them. But like if someone is uh, getting really defensive about their practices or maybe yeah. they can't, they're oh, an expert in nutrition. It's like, okay, they, they should be able to provide some kind of like clear breakdown of like the, the concepts or the areas they're talking about. So in 
relatively lay person terms as well. I think that's a that's usually a good marker in my head of where yes. someone is that if you can take something heavy and at least make it a little bit accessible, I think that's they're in the the right ballpark. Yes. Um, I suppose then kind of maybe going on from there. Um, we're kind of talking about research. I mean, you're just finished up your PhD. So like, I mean, you are like, you're an authority. I mean, that's the reality of it. Like, like you have like you've a good following and like a lot of the stuff you put out is very sensible and I mean, coherent and a lot of people, other people on Instagram, they might similarly put out stuff. So what are kind of the, the pitfalls, I suppose, and I suppose maybe appeal to authority is one, but what are the, I suppose maybe the pitfalls of the the consumer, I suppose, um, and some other kind of a, I don't know what, what words am I trying to say here, Shane? What the fallacies that people will kind of fallacies? That was that was the word. Yes, I think, and this is important because this this applies to even with the perception that we we've been talking about, you know quacks and kind of outrageous claims that are made often unsupported or supported with pseudoscience um the reality is the vast majority of that although we could although perhaps intuitively people might think well this information comes from kind of the gwyneth paltrow's of the world or some health blogger and they are a big proportion of the of the noise but, but they're not the majority of the noise when it comes to nutrition. The majority of the noise in nutrition, and that there was a paper in 2020 by John Unitas, uh, who's a, a kind of a statistician by trade at Stanford, but um, his whole kind of career is very much focused on exposing fraudulent research or faulty trials and stuff but he he doesn't like nutrition science and i don't agree with some of his criticisms but on on a couple of points he's right and he but he published a very interesting paper which randomly sampled around a hundred uh, popular books on diet and nutrition and broke down the authorship by the profession, the, the quali professional qualifications of the author and, and what they were practicing in. And overwhelmingly, the vast majority were produced by medical doctors. And this is enormously problematic for many reasons, but for the average person, again, in the lay public, medicine comes with more authority bias with regard to health than any other profession, dietetics, you know, uh, personal training, nutritionist, any other profession within the overall psychologist, within the overall umbrella of health sciences. No profession holds that level of authority bias and trust. It's not just the authority bias, it's the trust. Trust is a massive component of this than the, than the medical profession and medical doctors. And so this, this creates a really, really frustrating landscape when the majority of the nonsense and the quackery is coming from people who have a medical degree, they've been to med school, they've practiced as medical doctors, most of them don't really tend to, and in some cases have had their licenses revoked, but your average member of the public wouldn't know that coming across their page because they still refer to themselves with their title and qualifications. And again, it's not like social media regulates, you know, it makes you prove you have a PhD or anything like that, right? So 
this is this is something for people I think to be on guard with is the themes and the principles that we're talking about here about someone citing studies showing you what those references are communicating in clear effective terminology that a layperson could understand or and there, I, I will accept that there are limits to that in terms of depending on the complexity of the subject there's a limit to how much you can make it lay accessible in certain terminology and otherwise but doing the best to break down that complex topic into something that's understandable that that's not something that is only done or only applies to people that the level of skepticism and the standard that you would hold them to that that only applies to say like a health blogger it doesn't this this applies equally to someone with two doctorates and you know and a medical degree and and 30 years in practice as, a, as an endocrinologist for example they need to be held to the same epistemic standards as like some 22 year old bro with 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 no qualifications that's built an account based on his abs basically so they have to be and, and they're not and i think this is a really really important point to hammer home for people is you have to have that level of their title doesn't matter it does and it doesn't but it doesn't matter as far as any of these principles that we're talking about you know this all should apply to someone in fact, the more qualified they are, the more in a position of authority and expertise they are, the more that these standards have to be held by them. And if they're not, you know, and, and certainly if you're spotting these, you know, Mark Hyman is a classic example. Like the, the, the guy is, I can't remember the medical school that he went to, but, you know, he's, he's a long qualified medical doctor who, who initially started out really sensible. And then as it became more commercially lucrative to him to veer off left fields, he just kept veering and veering. And now he's just completely off the reservation. And he's a good example of someone who makes these, these types of claims on the basis of I'm into, and it's all very clever, right? You know, his, his, his podcast and show is called like, what is it called? Like the, the, the doctor's pharmacy or something like that, but it's pharmacy spelled like farm, like a, like an animal farm as opposed to like pH. Um, and this, this is all really clever ways of, and, and, you know, he'll use phrases like, well, when you, when you look at the data, you know, when you just, when you look at this research or what we see going on, and it's all very kind of persuasive rhetoric, to, or it certainly sounds like this is someone who really knows what they're talking about. Like, for example, me saying, well, we know that, you know, uh, for example, uh, we know that um, this nutrient will, will have a, someone who knows that research and that evidence base would probably goes straight then to talking about human outcomes and this is often a real big missing link with kind of quackery and pseudoscience they'll they'll say well cocoa is good for for blood pressure so you should eat loads of dark chocolate or eat this amount of dark chocolate right and so they go from just describing a general mechanism to making really specific food-based recommendations that everyone needs to do with their diet what they haven't done is tell you whether there's any intervention studies that have given people a certain dose of whatever compound this is and actually had a reduction in a specific outcome. Um, or even if there's observation, well, yeah, we see positive associations between this level of intake of a certain food or nutrient and lower risk of cardiovascular disease, right? Oh, okay, cool. So we have that observational research. We also have intervention trials 
that have that have upheld this. That's the kind of line of reasoning you want to see people go down. If they're just jumping from a mechanism to general recommendations about what you should do with your diet, chances are what they're just doing for that mechanism is just taking preliminary data from preclinical studies or basically rat, rat and mouse studies, and they're jumping to a deductive conclusion you know, from that step, which is a huge leap of faith. So I, I think there are things to kind of keep in mind when particularly people that, uh, you know, have a medical degree or a doctor or even, you know, a nutrition PhD, hold them to those same standards and, and look out for the manner in which they frame the claims they're making and the information that they're kind of putting across. Yeah, I think it's, um, it's always like important to see how, how different the kind of claims a certain person is making compared to like everybody else because like i suppose like medicine nutrition training like research is slow moving enough yeah somebody is like claiming that they are you know five ten years ahead of the research like you know you really have to kind of question or well how do they come up with this practice that they're recommending people to even be like safe mm -hmm. you know um like one that comes to mind is like hearing of people having like a locally sourced CBD oil uh, because you shouldn't get like CBD oil from like, you know, a pharmaceutical company, right. you know, because yeah. they got big pharma, you know, but it could be made yeah. in somebody's bathtub. Yeah. You know, so you're, you're cutting yeah. out all this kind of, control, all this kind of, you know, stuff that's there like in these big companies to keep you safe. Yes. Because of this kind of distrust. Yes. I think there is a lot of time there is, um, you know like with the likes of like medical doctors or whatever like that there is like a lot of distrust with with medicine mm -hmm. like one because you know people say oh well science is changing all the time and they're cha always changing the recommendations which i mean that's fine because like our know, research does okay. update itself over time thankfully um but then as well they will trust doctor or people so people will trust doctors when it suits their kind of beliefs yeah uh, so i think like in a sense, right? Like these people who like, you know, you may classify as quacks or whatever, like they are also preying on the kind of already built in distrust and like beliefs of people too. Mm -hmm. Like um, it's not uncommon for people who have more kind of out there beliefs to believe in many out there beliefs. Like they're all kind of interconnected. Like you want to have somebody who is like simultaneously like a, a 5G, like, you know, Mm. crackhead and then they are like you know completely evidence-based in every other kind of way yeah. of their thinking you know they generally kind of go together yes and and that's that's almost you know there's 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 almost a distinction we need to make between consumers in in this regard because there is there is a type of person that i think we're kind of probably speaking to more is someone who has a general interest in this stuff or in their own health for various reasons doesn't have domain specific expertise necessarily in any of those particular areas and uses social media and the internet to satisfy their own interest in relation to this stuff um, and so they're the people that we could probably characterize somewhat as victims in, in all of this because they're being kind of preyed upon, whether they know it or not, but they're the ones that are vulnerable to this kind of misinformation if they, if they don't have some basic toolkits to be able to 
have their bullshit radar come on, right? And I, and I say this a lot with the Quack Asylum episodes we do with, with Danny, that what we're trying to impart to people is that you don't need domain-specific expertise to think critically about the information that you're given. You don't need domain-specific expertise to have a few questions, things like we've been talking about, like asking for evidence, asking how that evidence supports the claim that's being made, things like that you can do just as a layperson and, and judge then from that information whether your bullshit radar should go on or not. But the other type of what you're describing are definitely not victims. They're part of the problem. Um, and, and we've seen a lot of the uh, research and, and David Robert Grimes's work is brilliant in this regard in terms of the study of conspiracy theories itself. And so what you described there, Shane, is, is absolutely what is seen in that research is that the biggest risk factor, shall we call it, for, for holding a conspiratorial belief is already holding a conspiratorial belief. Conspiratorial beliefs cluster together. Um, and it's the holding of the belief itself that it appears to be what people prize rather than the specifics of the belief itself. And so as a result, people can hold multiple different beliefs that might actually conflict and contradict each other, but they're holding the conspiratorial belief because of other reasons um, and they tend to be they tend to be a lot of the time narcissistically and, and, and arrogance driven um, and it's this idea that someone has special knowledge that the deluded masses can't see and that they're somehow kind of you know possessed with a, a higher power of ability to kind of deduce what's really going on and the, the, these kind of are the the cognitive underpinnings of conspiratorial thinking and and people that then flock to whoever the head of that particular or heads of that particular conspiratorial movement and chime in in the comments and indeed protect their leaders you know from from attack and you know they're they're as much a part of the problem as as whoever their kind of guru in that in that particular topic or area is um, and so I do think it's important to distinguish between those kind of th who are part of the machinery of, of, of charlatanry and quackery in many respects versus you know, people who are kind of victims in this in this noise of misinformation. Yeah, and I think the, I suppose when Shane told me you were kind of coming on in the week, I suppose, or earlier on, uh, earlier on the week or last week, I suppose I was kind of when you're kind of thinking about words and maybe like what different things might mean to different people but you said a word there mis like misinformation like like i mean in the last year i suppose that that like that concept to most people like even my mom's age like was someone in their 50s or someone in their 40s like you didn't really have to question too much about the information you were getting like sure. probably banned that like if enough people were saying it it was probably somewhere, somewhere right. Yeah, close enough to the line. It was, it was, it was there, thereabouts. So like, I mean, but like for people, for our age, if you're 30 and under, like most, most of us anyway, would probably take what we consume on, on Instagram or maybe on Facebook or even like papers, like mm. with, with a pinch of salt. Yes. Um, so like, what do you, uh, kind of see like this concept of like misinformation as nearly being used as a combative tool to science to empiricism it's 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 nearly almost gone the other way that 
oh well they don't want the truth yes. this is what it is and i mean this is this is where like the lines of reality do get blurred and we end up with yes. abstraction of what is reality what is reality what, yeah. and i suppose then now we're gone down, <laughs> gone down a, a terrible rabbit hole there but the the concept of misinformation to me it, i don't know like particularly within i would be shane be a bit more uh kind of interested in like nutrition but from me and my kind of like interest in my research would be all more uh x x phase training but um kind of misinformation and like i suppose my field is a lot less prevalent than it would be like maybe injury and nutrition and i suppose once you go down the health route you're you're gone yeah. but what does someone someone that's kind of looking for bits of misinformation or to consume something and they're kind of looking for kind of like okay what's what in this is maybe to be taken with a pinch of salt or what yeah it's, it's, it's become it's become a lot more difficult now i mean you know before the rise of the internet you had fairly defined channels through which information um streamed you know even if we think about the role of the media now you know Historically, the media had a broad agreement within media, particularly broadsheet type papers, to reporting the facts. Um, and sure, you might have had opinion pieces and columns that would have had a center left or center right bent, but for the most part, there was this definable. And so whether you read a slightly left of center paper or a slightly right of center paper, you still got the facts of a given current affair issue, for example. So so people were still appraised of the same sets of facts. And then in an academic sense, you know, you would have had the you know, production of knowledge into kind of textbooks, and then you would have had the scientific method with the process of peer review and, and publishing. And most fields probably would have had a fairly limited amount of journals where the scope from kind of really good quality journal to you know, garbage predatory journal would have been fairly clear and defined. The, you know, and the internet age has upended all of this, you know, and, and, and as a result of, you know, general polarization, even our kind of mainstream media now is just has just lost the run of its commitment to objectivity and, and papers are now expressly of a certain political persuasion and they view everything through that prism. So that's really even difficult to get a handle of what's going on in the world, let alone what, you know, health kind of claims are being made. We have a propagation of loads and loads of journals right so you know when when people are you know looking for good information you know it's it's easy for you know they'll say well you know i, I was talking to someone and they, they cited a, a study you know and you, you know you might look at the study and it could be in a pay for play journal the study itself could be garbage and so there's now this ability with the with the kind of information age for the, the again, this is the, the pseudoscience aspect, this veneer of science to be kind of pulled over. Um, and that creates a really difficult landscape, I think, for people to try and navigate. So there's, there's and, and again, with the propagation of kind of popular books rather than textbooks, you know, 20 years ago, you wanted to read a book about nutrition, you know, you, you got an, an academic textbook, you know. <laughs> Now you've got, again, some MDs just come out with, you know, the something diet and whatever the claims made are there. So I think for people listening to kind of have, again, a, a, a filter for, for information, 
I think a couple of things are possibly relevant. One is, you know, be critical of the, don't just think about, oh, this, this is a study because it's a published study. Where has it been published? You know, what your, like the idea that I would take an, a, 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 an article from the New England Journal of Medicine, one of the most prestigious journals in any discipline in the world, and give a paper published in that the same weight as something published in a journal that has about seven or eight words in the title, you know, Journal of Applied, you know, de-applied uh, translational something, you know, and it's like, so I think people can be discerning about where the science that are purportedly being referred to is actually coming from. Um, a simple thing that people can do when it comes to nutrition, specifically if someone is inclined to be reading scientific papers, uh, and this is something I've started doing a lot more in the last year, is look at the author list, right? One of the really unfortunate aspects of nutrition as a field, which is kind of, I can't think of another area of health science where this happens, is that people with absolutely no domain-specific knowledge publish papers in nutrition. They're from some nephrology department in a Chinese university, and yet they've published a meta-analysis of you know, dietary fat and cardiovascular disease. Um, and, and they've mucked it up, like the paper's awful. But you, know, you, you then go and look at the list of authors, and there's not a single person from a nutrition department. There's not a single person from, that, that looks like nutrition is their domain. Um, if this even happened recently in a good journal. So just as an example of this, there was a study published about a month ago, which did this modeling of longevity, right? And its findings were absurd. Like if you ate an ounce of nuts a day, you, you'd add like a month to your life, you know? Um, and so, you know, if you, if you took the study's findings at face value and you just ate the, the, the highest amount of every food they studied and added up their total of you know you'd get 15 years on the end of your lifespan uh so it's an absolute but it was published in plot in in the plus journals in plus medicine and you're like this is a good journal okay but then you look at the author list none of them were in the nutrition department so so they were they were they weren't able to contextualize the absurdity of their findings they were just taking it at face value because they didn't have any domain specific knowledge to put their findings into context or to at least inform their model in the first place. So I would look at the journal, um, you know, I know impact factor is, but for people that are just feeling this stuff out, impact factor can be, can be kind of useful, but look at the journal, look at the author list, you know, is someone in a nutrition department at least, you know, and if none of them are, I'd, again, I'd have some amber lights going. Um, as far as, as the kind of wider information space goes, you know, obviously everything on social media should generally be treated um, until, and I would say that even people that are evidence-based on social media, like the, the stuff that I try to post about, you know, treat, treat that with skeptic, like treat it with skepticism until the account that you're following has satisfied you that they're communicating science in, in, in line with all of these principles that we've discussed so far um, and keep them guilty until proven innocent, basically. <laughs> um, and as far as books and popular books go, I, I would be really, really skeptical of that whole genre um, of, of information if I was being completely honest. 
um, books written about diet. On the whole, I think I, this, I can't speak for training or strength and conditioning, but as, as regards nutrition, I would be highly skeptical of, of, of basically that the, 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 the genre of, of books. Would you say people should also, like along, along with like journal authors, should people look at like the type of study that it actually is? Uh, yes, but we're now getting into a almost level of kind of, again, domain specific knowledge that someone may or may not have. I mean, generally speaking, for lay people who are kind of feeling their way into this, uh, yes, having, having an eye on the hierarchy of evidence can help. You know, is the is the study that they're looking at a controlled intervention where participants randomized? Those kind of little checklists can help. If it's observational, things get a bit more tricky because people will be told, well, observational research is not as reliable as evidence higher up the list. For nutrition, that's not quite true. And unfortunately, this is where there's there's ultimately going to be a ceiling to how far any lay person can go with any of this stuff, yeah. right? That, that's just the re and part part of the part of the problem with the wider dialogue is a lot of the science communication world is focused on getting lay people as clued up as they are, and the field is that's it's just never going to happen. And we we need to we need to also understand. And I think individuals who learn about this stuff out of their own interest need to understand and kind of have the, I guess, epistemic humility and intellectual honesty to understand that there's going to come a certain point where you're either just going to have to bite the bullet and do a master's or go to college if you want to learn more about this subject in a way that gets you further on. Or there's just going to be a point where, you know, your interest is going to have to settle on following people and consuming content from people that are genuinely science and evidence-based and that you can be clued in, in in that regard. But yeah, there's just going to be a limit to how far someone can go because if I'm to start explaining, you know, why an observation, a really well-designed and executed prospective cohort study might be in, in many cases better than a poorly executed RCT in nutrition I can't explain that to someone in a way in a way that has enough lay language for them for them to get it basically you know that's going to require a level of technical know-how that allows people to go oh, okay I have this baseline knowledge and now I understand this concept you're telling me yeah I, I, I definitely agree with you I, I think there there has to be a threshold and the expectation of uh, I suppose from maybe the consumer or of the consumer and what mm -hmm should be expected of them because like you mentioned even there's something with study design i mean there's probably yeah. third and fourth year undergraduate students and even maybe some like <laughs> even some people that are maybe in research that sometimes struggle with like okay what's the suitable study here for, for the research question so i do i do think there's there there should be an expectation of like you said kind of like intellectual honesty and kind of known your lane when it when it comes yes. to this but i think it's funny because for an area like nutrition and training has obviously grown and kind of the, the zeitgeist of 
the culture we live in to be this really uh really popular thing and like the lives of most people but for a lot of people it's a hobby yes that's i think probably that needs to be made is that like like no one's no one's sitting there with an amateur physicist being like you know what you're the guy yeah Uh, he's not sitting up on instagram with twenty thousand followers being like okay i've figured out uh dark matter i i i get how it's working uh i know how to get into the black hole uh, because no one would take him seriously mm-hmm. but within within this realm um i suppose where like you said like like there's a lot of gaps there's and there's very clear like you can get, I suppose, maybe going back very early on, like, like I mean, you can be not very evidence-based um, and maybe not that, like, maybe aware of the things you don't even know and still, yes. like, be a good athlete or have coached good athletes. And I think that's why these areas of health science or kind of exercise science or maybe nutrition is so uh, suspect to those kinds of practices. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, food diet is, is kind of unique as an exposure, if we consider it as an exposure in that kind of sense, the way we might consider cigarette smoking an exposure or, you know, um, a training volume and exposure. But diet is something that one, unlike any other exposures that I can think of, we interact with it on a more regular basis. We eat multiple times a day we are digesting and assimilating and that those processes of, of, of digest of nutrition are in operation for most of our waking day and, and into, you know, the night. And so uh, it has a kind of unique place in that sense. And then when we factor in the reality that diet also has cultural, regional, traditional, religious influences um uh you know that 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 all kind of coalesce to to influence the foods and food groups eaten and chosen by an individual or a particular group community in society then it adds layers to the complexity of of studying it certainly but it adds layers to the complexity of it in the wider conversation because everybody feels certainly with nutrition like they have a stake in it you know like they like they've skin in the game so to speak um and that that creates a really messy landscape to have any sort of discussion on whereas that example of the physicist that you use you know none of us are even going to pretend for a second that that we know anything to do with that subject right most of us have probably never interacted with it unless we did you know applied maths or physics in in school or leaving cert or college and so the idea that we would lay claim to some sort of base-like knowledge in it would, would be so absurd that no one would, as you say, no one would take it seriously. However, everyone eats food <laughs> as a necessity for life. And so there's this level of investment into the conversation that is inherently personal, um, inherently often tied to someone's moral value structure as an individual or, or as the community that they're part of. Um, it's the only health science that I can think of that simultaneously doubles up as a human belief system. And that makes it really, really tricky to navigate as a conversation. And, and it's one of the things that I struggle with, I guess, kind of being 
in the field, but also kind of, I guess, having the wider public profile as far as, you know, Alinea and Sigma and, and social media goes is it's the thing that I despise most about the field that I'm in is that fact. Like, I'm interested in nutrition as a science because it's an incredibly challenging science. It's difficult to do good research. It's uh, very, like, from an epistemology standpoint, it's quite interesting. It's very different to biomedical science. And I, I have no interest in food, in the foods as an outcome. Like I consider food and exposure uh, in a kind of detached sense. And I couldn't care less whether the food that we're talking about is soy, lentils, red meat, or, you know, or, or cheese. Uh, whereas most people, certainly in the popular conversation, most people have a vested interest in that aspect of it. Uh, and they couldn't care less about the methodology and epistemology as long as the study says that whatever outcome they're interested in as a food is, you know, thumbs up. <laughs> um, and that's the part of the field uh, and the wider, well, it's, it's not necessarily to do with the research community too much, but certainly with the wider public conversation that I really, really struggle with. <laughs> yeah, of course, I suppose for, for anything though, like if you were, if we were all of a sudden signing, assigning like moral values to, oh, do you do five by five or three by 10 in your training? Yeah. <laughs> really weird, really quick. Right. Um, but like, I suppose it's like you said, because there's so many, like, there's so many contexts that have to be applied, like, and understanding that has to be, uh, I suppose, taken into account when you're dealing with someone's diet. And like you said, like, like in the kind of multicultural, uh, world we live in um like you said you could be dealing with religion you could be dealing with like where someone grew up where their parents grew up with like like there's so much can be factored in um to someone's diet and then their like belief systems around food yeah uh, one thing i'm kind of like i don't know i suppose maybe to lighten the mood and talk you down off the ledge um what are your like i suppose you're someone that's kind of you obviously think about these kind of things a lot and you're kind of very well spoken on the area but what are maybe like two or three very commonly held beliefs that you're just like stop it when you hear when you hear it or you see it uh are there any kind of like i don't know really obvious ones or kind of maybe like commonly held beliefs that you're like yeah uh i think i think <laughs> currently but you know if we're talking about right now as well i think there's a few there's a few definitely that spring to mind one is more kind of probably you know to do with the field itself and then so and it does play into some of the wider conversations which is this really arbitrary dichotomy that's drawn between you know observational studies and rcts and it's 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 such an overly reductionist way of thinking about things and people use it then to their to their own advantage right you know so yeah I, I had a debate uh two years ago now with you know one of these kind of low carber you know cholesterol denialists yeah vegetables are the reason everyone's sick types and you know and he, he was just like well look we just can't run so i was going through some cohort studies that were you know kind of quite robust, like to follow on with the interventions that support them but you know he kind of interrupts he's like we just can't rely on on nutritional epidemiology at all 
And I was kind of like, right, so now we've, we've two choices here. We either go into the methodology and explain why we can rely on it or, you know, and then, but then he goes on then to cite like an ecological study, like just a, a general observation of a tribe living in South America. It wasn't even, you know, there was no baseline data. It was purely ecological. And I was just like, this is, you know, this is, this is impossible. You can't, you can't navigate this territory. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's one thing. I, I think the other thing that I, I, I is quite loud at the minute is with the whole very extreme iterations of, of the low carb community, like the carnivore diet and this whole, you know, you know, these, you know, we don't need to eat fiber, but that claim has to be one of the most absurd levels of cognitive dissonance I've, I've ever seen anyone come about. And this is, this is how unhinged the conversation is becoming in nutrition, because even within the low carb community 10 years ago, you would have still had broad agreement on some of the kind of what we would consider indisputable tenets of nutrition science, like vegetables are good for you, fruits good for you, you should have a high fiber intake. You know, there was once upon a time, you know, a decade ago where people within the low carb community were talking about how you can maintain, you know, 25 grams of fiber on a low carb diet. Now it's like you deliberately should omit all fiber, fruits and vegetables from your diet. And it's like, this is, this is a wild journey from there to here, you know. Um, and the idea that those foods that then centrally form part of the diet, you know, just like red meat and butter, like have no nexus with heart disease as just this broad dismissal it's yeah I, th I think they're the they're the they're the biggest red flags I think I, I think I see now um and like the, the plant-based community are not immune from 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 wild claims as well but they tend to get away with it a bit more because because basically vegetables and fruit are good for you right and so a lot of the, even though what their wild claims tend to come in relation to is like disease protection you know like this diet will reverse heart disease no it won't this diet will reverse diabetes no it won't um and it's really difficult to get both of those communities to back down from either of the 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 kind of extremes of the claims and i think just a disproportionate amount of time is just wasted on dealing with this kind of crap so yeah i think there's there there's certainly a couple that drive me I think as well, like th those like extreme diets as well, like exist because people go from eating like a, like a very kind of typical Western processed food diet to eating like more kind of whole food based products. And then they like better energy or, as a result, you know, in the short term, at least. And then they're like, this is the diet that is like saves me essentially. Yes. And what they've essentially just done is like an elimination diet. <laughs> But yeah. if they're to reintroduce like you know more kind of whole foods back in, like you know on the vegan side, like you know if they're introduce like some meat, that's like you know like kind of linear cuts or whatever, they probably have better energy again. Same with the lads on the car carnivore side, if they start to uh, increase their fiber intake, they might actually take a shit every once in a while. <laughs> so like you know it's uh, yeah I suppose it's a tough one to navigate for like for that reason. Um, I, def I definitely struggle with it sometimes when I have like new clients coming in, they have these kind of previous, previously have beliefs like around a diet and yeah, it's like, how, how do you approach somebody who has such strong beliefs? Like it's, yeah, it, it's, it's really difficult to disabuse people of that kind of, you know, if, 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 if they've become 
set in the idea that 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 is true it's really just it's really difficult to kind of disabuse them of those ideas um i think yeah with, with a lot of this you know I was, I was talking about this with um with danny on wednesday we were recording an episode about detoxification right with some a, a big quack claim you know that you need to eat specific foods or supplement with specific nutrients to help detoxify and but with some of the claims right or some of the protocols you look at them and they're like well every day you should eat you know three cups of sulfuric vegetables like onions and gar three cups of cruciferous vegetables and then they go from that to making a claim about something like really niche for which there's little to no evidence and it's like okay well let's let's take let's steel man this and take a hypothetical example of someone who isn't feeling the great greatest and whose diet's not particularly, you know, uh, like of good quality. So, you know, a, a typical Western diet, pretty much little to no fruits or vegetables, you know, processed foods, high in fine carbohydrate, sugar, high in fat, sat fat. Um, and they suddenly start eating, you know, nine cups of <laughs> these different types of vegetables a day. We would absolutely expect their health to improve. And we would absolutely expect to see a benefit over time if that was sustained, right? And so the idea then that that's attributable to you've just boosted your detoxification rather than the very obvious fact that you're now eating nine servings of you know different vegetables, which all contain various kinds of nutrients and phytochemicals that are all beneficial. And it comes back to this, this phrase that you, you often hear kind of people in med school get taught, which is when you hear hoofbeats, first think of horses, not zebras. And um, what a lot of quacks are asking you to do is take perfectly undisputable aspects of, you know, recommendations for diet, like eat lots of fruit, eat lots of vegetables, you know, reduce like total animal fat intake and all this kind of stuff. But then they're asking you to then think that the improvements associated with those changes are to do with these really niche, you know, are to do with hearing zebras as opposed to horses. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's sometimes we need to just really kind of go back to first principles with some of this stuff and realize that there's likely a very low hanging fruit to pick explanation for why someone who makes those dietary changes would experience a benefit. But the problem is once people do experience that benefit, their tendency to become dogmatic about whatever diet they initially changed to, it's almost a slippery slope. It's very difficult to get someone to objectively see, you know, and we, we, we see this with, so like, again, to give the benefit of the doubt, let's like the low carb iterations. You've got someone who is, um, you know, let's say a BMI of 40, right? A huge amount of adipose tissue and they've dieted, they've done yo-yo diets, they've done, you know, low, low this, low that. Um, and they come along and someone says, well, actually, what you need to do is just eat animal meats um, and in high amounts and don't count calories and, you know, the weight will fall off, right? And they do, that's, that's they go and do that. They don't eat carbohydrates whatsoever, but they're eating, you know, God knows how many ounces of ribeye a day, you know, cooked in butter, blah, blah, blah. And the weight starts falling off. Now we could explain to this person 
okay, the, the, and, and, the, and they'll, they might make subjective claims like, I'm not hungry. I used to do these diets. I was hungry all the time. I'm not hungry now. I'm eating however much I want. We could be able to explain to them from an evidence-based perspective that you're eating a diet that's now predominantly protein um, and, and then secondarily fat. We know that protein and possibly a role for dietary fat as well in combination have a big impact on your satiety, right? We know that with ad libitum high protein feeding, when you can eat as much as you want, people terminate eating way before they might have actually hit a certain caloric threshold. So this person's now eating in the biggest energy deficit they've ever eaten in their life, but they're doing it in a way where they're full and yeah, the weight's dropping off. Now, is it the healthiest intervention? No, but this person is now going from BMI of 40 to BMI of 30, all right? But because they've started experiencing the success, they go into the echo chamber of the community. No one is talking about satiety, energy deficits. So now the belief system that they start to read online and in the forums and the communities they're in is, this is because you've cut carbs. It's because your insulin is low. It's because you're eating these foods we were designed to eat in our evolution. And so they come away from it completely full of shit as to the actual reasons for the outcome. And, and when we question that, the reason people get defensive is because they think we're picking on the outcome. And it's like, no, no, no one's disputing. You have experienced this outcome. You have gone from BMI of 40 to BMI of 30. That is, that is objective. It's measurable. You were this weight, you're that weight. No one's disputing that. No one's trying to take this away from you as an outcome. What we're trying to talk about is the reasons for that outcome. But once they've you know, got all the wrong reasons in their head, you know, they're, they're committed because they're the reasons offered within that community. Um, and, and again, the exact same example we could use for someone adopting a vegan diet for it, going from that same starting point. And we could have taken their twin brother, also BMI of 40, and they don't go low-carb carnivore, they go plant-based. They go whole food, plant-based. They don't eat any more than 10% of their total energy from fat. They basically just eat you know, carbohydrate foods and their proteins as a byproduct of that. And they also lose the same amount of weight. And again, we would be like, well, you know, you were eating really energy, like as in nutrient dense, but low energy volume, but high volume foods, low energy density, but high volume foods. You were really full. You're like, your stomach was like, you were basically like, a, a, you know, a monkey eating, eating all of its energy from plants. You're getting a massive fiber load. Your, your, your satiety mechanisms are all kicked in. Again, all of these reasons we could explain for the outcome, they're now like, oh, it's because I've eliminated all animal products from my diet. You're just like, oh, right, we're gone, you know? So both of them, yeah, both of them have had the exact same outcome from adopting two completely different diets. We understand why they would have those benefits, but we can't get that through to them because they've jumped into both respective communities and they've, they've had their heads full of, of, of the wrong reasons for those outcomes. Yeah, I think what's, uh, what's very funny there is you're kind of echoing uh, back, I suppose, what a lot of, I suppose, people maybe have on like their experiences of training. Like you'll have people that will just like flat out turn around and say like, oh no, I, I, I like high reps or like this, this type of exercise class or this is the, the type of program I like or this coach I, I really like. And it's, you're trying to explain to them, it's 
probably you were more adherent to your training when you were with that coach you probably went from missing two sessions a week to missing like maybe missing two sessions a month you sure. know you're you just did more work in the gym you lifted a little bit heavier you know the same principles of training applied and you just applied overload then over time but mm. like you said it's just trying to work backwards to explain to someone why that training program worked or that style of coaching worked or it's not that this one little gimmick that was yes. applied but I suppose it's just yeah it's hard <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think as well though like um, a lot of people I come back to like you know the maybe the, the mistrust in doctors as well a lot of people also mistrust like the broader government as well as if like the government doesn't have things in place there for exercise or nutrition yeah um, so like we mentioned like uh you know so many moving from like the typical western diet to like you know a carnivore soil or a vegan style diet and like the typical typical western style diet is not the food pyramid <laughs> it's no. not the government like <laughs> guidelines like most people like like will be following more kind of processed food based kind of diet like again like refined carbohydrates like you know highly palatable foods you know and like most people just aren't following the government guidelines full stop you know and you know there's no if they were to follow the government guidelines they would essentially be saved by something a, li a li little bit safer than like yeah. you know one side of the extreme you know mm -hmm. so, uh, if you have never tried any style training before and as opposed to doing like whatever like the 150 minutes of like you know physical activity you should be doing per week you decide to do like 10 by 10 germ volume training like fucking six days a week yeah, yeah. you know yeah. like destroying it works to a point but yeah. it's not gonna be the best thing long term so yeah. like an extreme kind of diet intervention yeah yeah and, and 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 like i think i think a big part of this is yeah that, that wider now because of the information age i mean i think these people kind of already already existed or have always existed but this this idea of the you know the truth seekers you know uh, and and everything we're told is wrong and you know question the narrative and and uh, at one level at a very superficial level that sounds like it's very critical right like it's critical thinking to you know but actually what's ironic is the very people who tend to kind of run with those types of narratives about themselves i'm an independent thinker i did my own end up just coming to the same conclusion that millions of other <laughs> automatons have come to, you know, they all end up thinking a certain thing about COVID vaccines. They all end up thinking a certain thing about dietary guidelines. And it's like, it's incredible that so many independent thinkers just basically arrive at the same narrative version of, of how they view the world. Um, which just kind of makes a mockery of the whole concept of themselves as an independent thinker in the first place. Uh, I, I think that feeds into nutrition a lot. The conversation about nutrition is impossible to divorce from both sides, from both extremes, though both the low carb and the kind of plant-based crowd both have their own narratives about how the advice we get is a conspiracy. You know, the low carbers see it as a big conspiracy by the sugar industry to, you know, demonize fat and they, they lied about the research and blah, blah, blah. And the plant-based community see it all as a big conspiracy by the dairy industry and, you know, the beef industry and whatever to get us eating a certain way. And so, these narratives are very difficult to 
uh, end up having a measured kind of just science-based conversation without someone interjecting with this with these kind of perspectives into the conversation. Um, and I think that's why, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, nutrition in many respects is just in some ways a microcosm for what we see play out politically over the last five or six years. You know, we it's a deeply polarized field in the, the conversation, the popular conversation, not the actual academic field. I think this is the, to the frustration of the nutrition research community is most people that I know don't know any of this stuff. They don't pay attention to this stuff. They don't know who these, you know, loud charlatan voices are on social media. And certainly when I'm in an academic context, I'm almost like embarrassed to even like, I don't bring it up that I have like an Instagram account. Like, <laughs> it's just it's uh, so cringe um so that the research community is one thing but in the popular conversation you know we have a very deeply polarized conversation that has two diametrically opposed belief systems to which there is absolutely no reconciling between the two paradigms at all there's there's no bridge to gap you know b between the two um and they're just screaming at each other and no one's listening <laughs> so it's yeah, you know, this, this, yeah, nut nutrition and on social media could just could be, could be Brexit, could be Trump, could be, could be any of it. Like, you know, it's just the same thing as playing out. There is a weird kind of polarization there, though, where like, even anecdotally, like, you'd, uh, you'd, like, you'd really associate like, like a vegan or a plant based diet with someone being like left leaning or like very yeah. left leaning. Like, yeah. Kind of a, a carnivore or a ketogenic diet with like your kind of more like right wing yeah and i mean like it's just you're like why was it that thing like, yes. like, yes. obviously, guys, like there has to be considerations for like maybe personality traits maybe like if you're more uh, i don't know socially minded or you're more empathetic you're more likely to be left-leaning and if you're more mm -hmm. left-leaning maybe less likely to i don't know want to fucking kill an animal yeah, yeah. yeah there are there are some of those carl there's some in the kind of more like sociological nutrition research there there is some evidence for for some of these kind of correlations and uh, particularly for meat eating you know it it does definitively tend to correlate quite strongly with you know perceptions of of masculinity and, and manliness and and I, I think that's why this carnivore community is kind of really represented like highly in america which you know like i mean if tucker carlson's telling people to tan their balls like the, the, the nation is having a crisis of conscience as far as its masculinity goes and so it's no it's no surprise that all of these like shirtless jacked bros that just eat meat are, are all in america <laughs> liver king liver king you know he has it sorts like like he like that man is building like you know what he's he's a good guy oh, he's, like, nailing like, <laughs> he's nailing it uh like but like there's just like but there is there's a like there is a meme that exists like i suppose in like both but like you said like like both dichotomies like and it's it's a uh, it's kind of grown more and more like you said apart like that you could nearly like if, you, if I know you're vegan or I know you're on a ketogenic diet or I know you've had a, like you've been on a carnivore diet, I could probably make a bunch of assumptions like where you stand politically or like yes. what you think about like other social issues like off the bat and I'm probably right nine times out of ten. And like that's to me like unnerving. 
is like yes. final one about you. Yeah. There's a bunch of other like there's a like a snowball of assumptions I can make that are probably accurate. Accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, it is. It, it places diet. It, I think it firmly kind of confirms uh, diet as as a belief system as part of someone's self construct. You know, when when you can essentially predict. You know, from if you knew simply like their political allegiance, for example, you could probably predict a, a you know a dietary allegiance as well, or you know a, a certain worldview would all kind of cluster together. Um, I think it, yeah, I think it speaks to kind of diet as a as a belief system as a part of someone's inherent sense of themselves. Yeah, and I suppose, like you said, there, like maybe the there's there is kind of a weird. <laughs> community thing to it as well where like I like and I suppose maybe it stems from like the um I don't know maybe not having like I don't know maybe we should all fuck no, have a personality maybe like start, yeah. start, yeah. start back <laughs> if the most interesting thing about you is your diet like I mean you're really you're really struggling yes mm. yes yeah yeah you, there's not really much going on <laughs> But maybe we should start going back to masks and everyone will be uh <laughs> yeah. this what happens when, re when religion died, you know. That's it. Yeah. Protestants now it's carnivores and vegans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah. we can sit here all all night fucking talk about this stuff because it is it is interesting. Um but I suppose as we wrap up, is there any kind of like final thoughts or kind of uh I don't know methods people could use to kind of ensure that they don't fall prey to these like systems. Um, you know, I think I think you know for lay people certainly, like we said earlier, there's look, there's just going to be a limit to you know how much kind of domain specific knowledge someone could acquire in a kind of hobby sense before they need to just you know kind of go further with it if they want to. So, so assuming that's not the case, I think people probably are best served by brushing up their general critical thinking skills and critical literacy. That's not necessarily specific to any kind of domain. And there, and there are good resources for that. Like, you know, David Robert Grimes is the irrational ape, uh, Daniel Levison's lies, damn lies and statistics. You know, there are multiple, you know, kind of, some of Richard Dawkins' works, you know, there, there are great you know, tools out there that someone can use to start kind of gathering some of these skills. And I, I think from then a domain specific perspective, it's just seeking out and, and finding the right people to follow, you know, whether that's, you know, in the, in the S&C side or whether it's in the nutrition side or whatever someone's interest is, you know, it's, it's, it's really just cultivating and and this should be narrow like the, the the reality is that if you're going to be following people that are very kind of science and evidence-based in a given field and you're following them either on social media or the other channels through which they put out information that's probably going to be a list of people you can count on one maybe two hands if it's any more than that you know like <laughs> I, I highly highly doubt it um you know it's really going to coalesce around around a, a number of and so I guess that message would be to you know to keep keep those keep those channels tight keep keep the channels of your information consumption 
to a few tried and tested sources and, and keep it tight and you know you should be okay as long as you're not I think where people get into trouble is where they're just exposing themselves to you know all sort of indiscriminately following anyone that you know like has some sort of claim to whatever the field is that they're interested in yeah i think just not using fucking instagram or youtube yeah, yeah. information yeah. would probably be a good start for a lot of people yeah, um, yeah. yeah. like how like I don't know the amount of conversations I've had with people. It's like, where, like, where the fuck did you pull this out of? Like, yes, and then, yes. Like, you kind of realize after a while, you're like, you're just kind of regurgitating maybe the thoughts of someone else, or there's been some kind of like weird imprinting from, I don't know, a few of your friends in the gym or whatever. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think that will be a start. I think that's a really good point as well. Like, what you're making is like just because you like like the aesthetic of their instagram or yeah, what yeah. They're saying. it's like quite like definitely question that i think yes. I, I, that's that's, yes. a, that's a very good a very good starting point for a lot of people <laughs> yeah um alan thanks so much for coming on uh that was really informative um and i think there's a rake in there that like even even if for someone that might consider themselves a little bit of a, a critical thinker or, or or an independent thinker uh, hopefully they can uh, they can come away come away with that and maybe unfollow a rake of people. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, go do a purge of the phone after this. Yeah. Um, thanks, lads. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Pleasure. Yeah, thank, thank you very much, Alan. And as, as we close off, would you be able to tell the people at home where they can find you on Instagram or uh, where they can find it in general? Not yeah, so I, I do keep my channels of output narrow. Uh, so you can find me at Alinea Nutrition, which is my kind of research review website specific to nutrition you can also find me at sigma nutrition with danny lennon uh, we've got the podcast specific to the quack <laughs> the quack asylum and then we've got the other general podcasts on nutrition topics and then on social media it's just at the nutritional underscore advocate on instagram and that is the only nutrition that's the only social media channel that i that i operate down to keep the noise low yeah needed uh here i wouldn't imagine it being one for the tiktoks no, 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 or Twitter. I've stopped. I've, I've stayed away from Twitter my whole life, so I'm not starting now. <laughs> Beautiful. Right. Uh, thank you very much for listening at home. I'm sure you took a lot away from that episode. And yeah, make sure to follow Alan. I'll leave all his links at the in the description. And yeah, uh, hopefully we'll be back next week with another episode. And yeah, make sure that you like, subscribe, do the kind of stuff that helps the podcast grow. And we will catch you in the next one. What is up, people? Thank you very much for listening to another episode of the podcast. Just a quick announcement. Myself and Lawrence do have coaching spaces available. So if you're looking to get into powerlifting, if you're looking to become the strongest version of yourself or achieve the lean physique that you've always been looking for, or even if it's just to improve your nutrition so you can help with your sports performance or gain some healthy habits, we are there to help. So if you want to get in contact with us, you can get in contact through our emails or our Instagram, which are in the description below. And we look forward to helping you achieve your goals.